Welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Aw, I am Dr. Moya McTeer, a friend to the universe and an astrophysicist and a folklorist and one half of this hosting super team. <laughs> and I am Corinne Cabuto, the other half of this hosting super team. I am a writer, a comedian, and a friend to the universe. Hell yeah, you are. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where are we recording from today, Moya? Okay, so this episode is actually coming out right after my birthday. So we're recording in the time when I'm preparing for my birthday and I needed to get my hair done. So we are recording today (laughs) at a hair salon. I'm here to get a deep conditioning steam treatment and a little trim just to make sure my ends are healthy um, because I already love the natural style of my hair. Yeah, you got to treat yourself on your birthday. You really do. I want to look good. And I just love being in this environment with all the chatting, all the like yes. the sound of the hair dryer. It just brings me back to my childhood. It's very so community fast. oriented, the hair salon. And I love it. It really is. Corinne, what are you getting done today? Oh, OK. I'm going to just get a trim. I'm never as adventurous as I want to be for a haircut. Mm. So when Trump got elected in 2016, I cut my hair real short. <laughs> I think it was like, it was the only time I've ever done that. It oh. was definitely a, I suddenly need control quickly. <laughs> I'm going uh-huh. to get a short haircut. It, <laughs> it did look cool, but it's long again. And maybe I'll get layers. I think you'd look great with layers. Yeah. Maybe maybe a curtain bang. Ooh. We'll see. Well, I mean, is that a, is that a cry for help, Corinne? Mm. <laughs> the bangs? Well, I feel like curtain bangs are um, if you want to dip your toe in something adventurous, but you're not ready for the full acrylics. <laughs> they grow out better than other bangs. Oh, OK. I, did, I didn't know that. Maybe I'll ask for their opinion. They always know better than me. They do. They're so wise. They know everything. <laughs> um, when you said you cut your hair just to gain back some semblance of control, it reminded me of when I used to get really stressed in college and cut my hair in these fits of rage and sorrow, and my roommate would get so concerned. But the last time I did that was right before my senior year of college. I have I have not taken scissors to my hair in angst since. <laughs> it's a very toddler-like reaction to life. Yeah. Where you're like, yeah. oh, here's scissors. Here's a little bit of freedom. No one's looking at me. (laughs) The things you do as an adult to assert your freedom. No, it's just, it's a really cathartic feeling, like literally getting some weight off of my shoulders from my hair. Now I just go get stress tattoos. Yes. Oh, totally. That's like a much, (laughs) that's a much more fun and permanent solution. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, oh, instead of temporarily chopping off something that naturally comes out of my head, why don't I just go pay a lot of money to have a stranger stab me? millions of times and permanently alter my physical form. That sounds great. There's a tattoo shop in Williamsburg called Ephemeral, and they do like mm. long lasting temporary tattoos. How does that even work? I don't know. I feel like it's got to be a henna type ink, mm. Um, mm. but I don't know how long it lasts, but I liked that it was called Ephemeral. I thought that was a cool, very a Williamsburg nice. name, and it mm-hmm. and it fits the, the space. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, okay, so while we're getting our hair done, uh, let's talk about how astronomers search for extraterrestrial life. This was a topic that you Hell were yeah. like, Moya, I want to know how we find aliens. I really need to know about this. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, um, well, not obviously, but I have no personal connection to aliens. So beyond... <laughs> That's obvious um, to me. I do. I used to watch a lot of, um, like pre-streaming the cable era of trash TV, which was largely, Mm. and this is still true, it's largely unsolved mysteries or people talking to camera and saying like, this is when I was abducted. And those are always (laughs) the shows that I would just gobble up. Mm -hmm. I think I watched Ancient Aliens like once. Oh my gosh. And I was like, never again. I I love the ones of people talking to camera and they're just like, they poked my belly button a few times. (laughs) dream you just just had a dream of someone poking your belly button but i'm sitting there and i'm like oh my god they did that but i mean to an alien to an alien from a species that doesn't reproduce the same way we do yeah they might not have ever seen a belly button and they're like "Ooh, why why do they have a feed hole why do you all have this trait (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um okay so i have to say this up top Astronomers have not found evidence of extraterrestrial life elsewhere in the universe or here on Earth. Let's just keep that all in mind. (laughs) Everything we're talking about in this episode is how astronomers are trying to find proof or evidence of, of extraterrestrial life. But we haven't found it yet. 
But we could. <laughs> they would take my astronomer's card away if I didn't <laughs> say that. Because so many times I, I do interviews or I do talks and someone from the audience will ask me if I believe in aliens. And I like I do. I do think they're out there. I'll, I'll be very upfront about that as well. But I know that astronomers haven't found evidence yet because we're all such gossipy bitches. It would, I, yeah, it would come We right wouldn't out. be able to keep the secret. I remember back in, uh, I want to say like 2017, because it was, it was for the TRAPPIST-1 system coming out. It was embargoed. People were not supposed to be talking about these results. No one was supposed to know about it except for the team of researchers and the very small team of journalists covering it. And I knew about that like three weeks before it came out because of some some rumors, some whispers I heard in a classroom with grad students. This wasn't even this wasn't even faculty talking like I know they were it. It trickled down. That's so funny. We need uh, like the Dumois of astronomy. Like Dumois, the anonymous like blind items Instagram account where everyone sends oh. in their celebrity encounters. <laughs> and it's a lot to keep up with. I just check in now and then. But to have that for aliens, that's what I need for aliens. I'll be your Dumois for aliens. Yeah, you be my Dumois for aliens. <laughs> All right. So let's get into into this search, the, the search for extraterrestrial life uh, or SETI, as it's now known, um, just quick up top, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life, is distinct from the SETI Institute. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, I've heard of the SETI Institute. Right. Uh, The SETI Institute does a lot of SETI work, but they are not the only people who do SETI work. People at NASA, um, other people funded by government agencies, they they can do uh, work in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, even though they are not uh, employed by the Institute. Got it. Yeah, so they are separate. Uh, But this is not a new thing. I feel like a lot of people assume that we've only recently started looking for aliens. Um, It is only in the last um, 30 years or so that we knew there were planets outside of our solar system. But people have been thinking about the possibility of extraterrestrial life for thousands of years. Um, We have evidence, we have writing from ancient societies, mostly Greek, because that's where a lot of the writing comes from, Mm -hmm. or like... That's a lot of the writing that survived. Uh, but there were some Greeks like Metrodorus and Epicurus who separately wrote about how, why should we be the only ones here? Um, there, If you look into ancient Greek philosophies, there was this one called atomism where they believed that everything, uh, if you zoom out, was... Uh, structured like an atom with a little nucleus in the in the middle and then things orbiting around it like our sun yeah. in the middle and then planets orbiting around it and they're like why why can't there be other little atomic solar systems like we have with their own planets and if all of the molecules they didn't have this language back then but if all of the molecules to make life happened here why can't they happen elsewhere uh, so this is not a new thing. Uh, But there were institutions back then that squashed thoughts of extraterrestrial life. Uh, Corinne, can you think of perhaps one very influential institution that might have uh, squashed this thought? Could it be the church? It could be the church. (laughs) It could be. It's always the fucking Catholic church. It's always the church. Uh, (laughs) They're always doing something bad. I know. (laughs) There's no fun. I know. The Catholic church, they were like, nah, everyone, we are the center of everything. And if you say anything to the contrary, we're going to poison you. Yeah, they're always like pulling their fists back, like, <laughs> really ready are. to fight. They, they need they need one of their uh, religious brethren to, to hold them yes, back, yes. Like, you, like in a bar brawl. Um, so a lot of this idea where we haven't been searching for extraterrestrial life and a lot of people who say, well, there aren't aliens out there. I think a lot of that thinking comes from the church and how adamant they were that there was nothing else out there and that we were God's chosen of course people of course yeah. it's all about control mm, of course but then we we had the copernican revolution we realized that the sun is the center of our solar system and not uh the earth and that the earth is not the center of everything we started looking at the other planets in our solar system through telescopes and gaining better observational data we learned more about the nature of stars and planets and we started thinking about aliens more scientifically which is where I get excited. That's yeah, where yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Fast forward to 1960. We're going from ancient Greece to 1960. It's a short leap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so 1960, uh, according to what I found, was the first modern scientific search 
for extraterrestrial life. Um, it was led, this project in 1960 was led by Frank Drake. Uh, if you are interested at all in, in alien science stuff, I'm sure you've heard the name Frank Drake because of the Drake equation. Have you heard Ooh, of the Drake equation, Karina? I don't think I have. Really? Oh, that's such a nice surprise. Well, we'll get to the Drake equation in a bit. But first, I want to talk about Frank Drake's project Ozma, uh, which was this first search for ET life. And he named it after the Queen of Oz, like from the from the Wizard of Oz. Uh-huh. And he said he he named it that because Oz was, and I quote, a place very far away, difficult to reach, and populated by exotic beings. <laughs> that is if if Oz is anything, it's that. <laughs> it's that. And he was like, Yeah, I I'm looking for a place far away with exotic beings. So let's name this Project Ozma. And I oh, I I love Frank Drake. I'm so glad. That he did this work. R.I.P. He died um, in September of 2022. And he did a lot of great work for astronomy. I'm saying a lot of nice things about him because I'm about to say something really mean. (laughs) This project was so dumb. (laughs) This project... Mm -hmm. I don't think makes any scientific sense given what we now know about about space. So he took... um, NRAOs, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, which we talked about in the the light episode. Um, shout out to the Radio Quiet Zone and my favorite region of the electromagnetic spectrum. <laughs> uh, so Drake was using NRAO's 85-foot antenna at the Green Bank Observatory, and he pointed the telescope at two sun-like stars for six hours a day for three months. Okay. Yes. Um, so that telescope wasn't measuring um, like how much light we're getting from it. It was measuring the spectra of these stars. And we talked okay. about uh, spectra a little bit in the light episode. But basically, he was trying to figure out what uh, like what elements were in these stars. Ah, OK. But he was specifically focused on uh, one line, one spectral line, the 1420 megahertz line. Uh, Megahertz is the frequency. Remember, we talked about how frequency and wavelength are very related. Mm -hmm. So 1420 megahertz corresponds to 21 centimeters in wavelength. Um, And the 21 centimeter line is, for astronomers, a a famous, (laughs) a famous spectral line. We're nerdy enough to have famous spectral (laughs) lines. (laughs) Um, But this, this line, this is the frequency or energy of the photon emitted by hydrogen in the interstellar medium. And Frank Drake was like, oh, we've discovered this interstellar hydrogen. We know that it's very important to astronomy. Any other sufficiently advanced civilization would also know about this line. And for and this is this is the jump. This is the leap that I don't appreciate. Um, just because they know about that emission line, they would use it as a hailing frequency. Like Frank Drake really thought that Alien societies would all use the 21 centimeter line as a sort of communication. Oh, okay. Okay. Across alien species. Certainly, if we find it interesting, then they will too. Exactly. Yeah. So I, (laughs) I, um, admire Frank Drake as a scientist, but he was definitely engaging in some, like, principle some assumptions over here (laughs) yes some assumptions were made that the way we do things is the way everyone is going to do things and you'll see that play out a lot in this episode and this line doesn't correspond to like what's necessary for what we define as life no it it does not then what the heck are you doing man (laughs) (laughs) hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe so when Uh we're looking in the interstellar medium in the place between stars we see a lot of hydrogen gas so it's one of the the more common lines that we study so how does it narrow the field down in any way I don't know. The fact that like he picked two stars, two stars out of the hundreds of billions in our galaxy to look at. And he was getting paid by big stars. Oh, star. oh, that's actually. A- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. Um, speaking of money, though, uh, because he only used existing equipment and he didn't have other labor, like he was just doing this work himself because he was passionate about it. The project only cost two thousand dollars. What? Mm hmm. In modern Time. Like in modern isn't... time. Well, in 1960, yeah. <laughs> it cost $2,000 for him to operate this telescope. Fun that. I know, right? Because he didn't, this was a really controversial topic. The public didn't believe in aliens. The public didn't believe that uh, funding, that government funding should be put towards this type of research. Uh, okay. Um, the public is always so worried about what 
federal funding is going towards yeah. and never, never paying attention to the military. I was just going to say, well, <laughs> I learned um, when I was at the Space Center that uh, the New York City Department of Ed has a bigger budget than NASA. Yeah. NASA's budget is a tiny drop it's in the bucket. It's so tiny. Mm-hmm. We should, maybe we should do an episode about NASA budgets. That sometime. would be fun. Um, so it, it was a very cheap project. Uh, he wasn't trying to enrage the public. And that was in 1960. And then about 15 years later, in 1974, Drake crafted the Arecibo message. Have you heard of this? I don't think so. So the Arecibo telescope, may it rest in peace, may it rest in power, actually, Yeah. Um, was a huge dish, a huge satellite dish in Puerto Rico that was used to send a a message with information about Earth and humankind uh, to a globular cluster, which is this little collection of stars in the, like, halo of the Milky Way galaxy. And Frank Drake crafted that message. And then we sent these short pulses of uh, of radio signal to transmit this message out into space. Whoa. Was So the message is just like signals or is it like language? It's signals. Okay. Um, so part of one of the goals for, for the Arecibo message was to just show how powerful the telescope was mm-hmm. and the the transmitter was that was sending this signal and sure. it's it's just it's waves it's a wave packet but they they figured out how to take information about like our DNA and our position in space and put it into wave form uh, so that it can be hopefully interpreted yeah. by whoever receives the signal and it was aimed at the globular cluster M13 but by the time the light waves actually reach that space, M13 won't be there anymore. Oh. So we, 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 it will have moved. Maybe something else will will be there instead. But Whoa. So a lot of people were mad. They were like, why are you sending out this signal? If someone finds it, they might come to us. So you're putting us in danger. Uh, but the chances of someone actually receiving that signal are very, very low. And they mostly were just using it to see how powerful the transmitter at mm. Arecibo was. Okay. So that was 1974. This is now decades of Frank Drake and other people involved in in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence repeatedly hearing from the public, we don't like what you do. We don't want to fund it. We don't want you sending out these messages. And uh, the the U.S. government was hearing that and stopped funding um, through the normal channels to get this research done. So... In 1984, some of these SETI astronomers got together and decided to start their own nonprofit called the SETI Institute. SETI Institute, there it is. And now we're finally at SETI. Uh (laughs) Um, It's a nonprofit organization that began operating in 1985. Its first officers were Thomas Pearson, who was a a business like admin person and Dr. Jill Tarter, a woman after my own heart, who was uh, one of the like lead SETI science researchers there. Early trustees included Frank Drake, of mm-hmm. course, and uh, Carl Sagan, who was nice enough to to give us the name <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so SETI's the SETI Institute. I'm going to try and be very careful about that throughout yeah. this episode. The SETI Institute's goal when it was incorporated was to focus on research and education around the factors of the Drake equation. So now now we have to get into what the now, Drake equation is. Here we are. You've really never heard of this? I think maybe I have. I'm mm-hmm. looking at our notes and I it's ringing a bell. But again, the alien stuff I was into was the farmers who have been abducted (laughs) not the actual science facts of aliens i'm just here for the late night trip to the bathroom where you never return great maybe maybe get your belly button poked a little bit exactly i love how we're coming at this from two Two very different angles Mm -hmm. maybe perhaps like the aliens probing your belly button i like to think that they would go they, they would approach it from the front and the back. That's how I would do it if I was an alien. Well, they would be curious. I'm like, is there uh, is there something on the back now? Right. Like, what happens if we meet in the middle? I just can't <laughs> imagine poking something I've never seen. Before. Like, I just think I would stand far away and be like, I don't know about that. Therein lies the difference between us, that, Corinne. I'm, there I'm it poking is. everything. That's the line. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to hold myself back from licking every foreign object I see. You're going to go out there and poke it and report back to me, which is the whole dynamic here anyway. Corinne, Corinne I'm going to go lick it and report back to you. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so this, this Drake equation was uh, not from 
one single mind. Let's get rid of the idea of the lone scientific genius doing all the work on their own. Um, instead, this Drake equation, even though it's named after Frank Drake, was agreed upon at a meeting uh, with a lot of astronomers in 1961. And the Drake equation itself is this long list of factors or coefficients, if you remember that word oh, from high school math class. I do. Flashbacks, right? Um <laughs> So it's a long list of factors or coefficients that represent the steps towards an intelligent species or civilization. And when you multiply all of these factors together, you get the number of transmitting extraterrestrial societies. Okay. So these, uh, there are, there are seven of these factors. Um, and N, the, the number of like transmitting societies equals I'm just I'm I'm going to say all the all the letters out loud and then I'll tell you what they mean. So N equals R star times FP times NE times FL times FI times FC times L. Okay. Couldn't tell I love you. that this is an audio medium. Like really this <laughs> Everyone got that? <laughs> Everyone got that? Well, okay, now I'll tell you what it is. All right. So this this number of transmitting species um the first coefficient starts with R star, which is the formation rate of suitable stars, of stars that could like lead to life. Um, that's pretty much all stars, except we do know that the most massive stars, like the O and B stars, um, we should also do an episode on stellar types. That'll That's in the works for the future. Wow. Um, but these very, very hot stars don't live long enough for life to form. Okay. Um, they can only, they live about like t 10 to maybe 100 million years. And we know on Earth, at least, it took uh, one or two billion years for life to develop. Okay, so that's the formation rate of suitable stars, which again is is most types of stars. And in the Milky Way galaxy, for example, uh, we form like a, we probably form about five to 10 stars a year of various masses. Wow, that's a good for us. I know, right? <laughs> we form we form like a couple solar masses worth of stars every year, but you have to remember that most stars are much less massive than the sun. So, mm -hmm. it's not like we're only making one sun-like star every year. Okay, so that's that's the R star. The the next factor is the FP and that is the fraction of stars with planets. Okay. That makes sense, right? So you're mm -hmm. like you're looking for the the number of stars that form and then you're only interested in the fraction of those stars that have planets. Even more specifically, you're interested in the fraction of those stars with planets around them, but those planets have to be habitable. So that that third coefficient, the NE, is the number of potentially habitable planets per system. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. But there are a lot of assumptions going into this. Okay. Keep, keep that in mind. Um, so that's the number of potentially habitable planets. And then you multiply that again by the, the fraction of planets where life appears. And then uh, the fraction of those planets where the life becomes intelligent. Mm -hmm. And then the fraction of those planets where the intelligent life creates or invents detectable technology. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to multiply all of this by L, which is the average length of time that a civilization survives at that technological level. Oh, okay. Wait, how long is it? How long do we have? Well, I mean, the, so all... <laughs> What the SETI Institute does is try to constrain the values of each of these coefficients. Okay. Like we still aren't totally sure what the star formation rate is. We still aren't totally sure how many uh, planets there should be in a, right. in a system, like on average. And, and we aren't sure how common life is or right. you know, once there is life. How common is intelligence? Like, we don't know these things, and that's what the SETI Institute is trying to figure out. Yeah. Um, but this this L factor is interesting because that brings in the idea that a civilization might be destroyed. Yeah. Um, this brings in philosophical questions like, is the end of a civilization inevitable as they continue to advance technologically? And there have been so many sci-fi stories or so yes. many like short little thought experiments about this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the L factor there is really important. And yeah, that's really catching me too. Because, because I think it really, it's of all of these factors, it's the one that relates to us the most. Yes. I'm like, oh, immediately yeah. I'm like, how long do I have? Exactly. <laughs> it creates that existential dread. Um, 
we don't know. <laughs> we have no way of knowing. Uh, but I am choosing to be optimistic. Um, I think a lot of people, when they start thinking about the average duration of an intelligent society, they start thinking maybe about the Fermi paradox. Have you heard of this? Yes, I have heard of Fermi's paradox. Yes. So Fermi's paradox is like, if there are all of these planets in the galaxy and we think that life is probably pretty common, where are all the aliens? Why haven't we found them? Why haven't they made contact? Okay, so there are a lot of reasons. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons <laughs> not to fall into the trap of the Fermi paradox. For one, space is really big. If people are traveling and they don't have faster than light technology, like if that truly is not possible, then it's going to take a society time to spread around the galaxy. Uh, but maybe it's also just expensive to travel around the galaxy, or maybe it's logistically difficult, or maybe uh, the galaxy is filled with hostile aliens that uh, prevent any sort of of spreading of societies, or maybe... Or maybe they <laughs> visited us in the Midwest one night, and they met that night. man, and he said, and they were like, I don't think I don't think we want to be here. And they put him back and they. <laughs> right. That is a, a common response to the Fermi paradox, which is like, maybe we're just being ignored. Maybe the aliens came by, saw that we ain't shit and, they're like, and decided to leave. I don't want a piece of that. <laughs> Continue as you were. Uh, so there are there are lots of reasons not to fall into the Fermi trap. I think that just because we haven't detected aliens doesn't mean they aren't out there. And it doesn't mean that uh, these societies are short-lived because mm -hmm. that, that's the thing right like without the l factor there the number of transmitting societies that we get from the drake equation should be fairly high and so people think uh that that l factor is what is uh making it so we aren't seeing any aliens because they don't oh, live long enough for us to see them and then they get worried about us they're like well we know we're intelligent and we have technology but what if we just don't live long enough right what if we don't last long enough so yeah i don't really have any any uh comforting words for you there other yeah. than we seem to be doing fine. <laughs> I mean, like, I know we joke about how the world is on fire. And yes, the oceans did literally catch on fire a couple years ago. But that's because of, of, uh, of stuff that we know how to fix. Like, we can fix it. Yeah. I believe in us. I'm looking over at my TV and I'm like, or the TV's in the salon. And I'm like, <laughs> they're going to just sprout arms and legs and kill us all. Which is clearly not what we mean by technological, like, death. <laughs> but right. it's what my brain is going to. I'm like, great, everything around me is going to grow a little face and stab me in the night. <laughs> Corinne, that's terrifying. Yeah, this is where my brain goes. This I is what, what's captivated me. Okay, well, I don't think it's going to happen. No. Or at least we have a few years. <laughs> You're not being very comforting, Corinne. No. It's, and neither is Moya. <laughs> that's true. Okay, let me let me try and be a little bit comforting. Um I don't think the technology is going to grow a face and attack us. Usually when people say, when they talk about technology leading to the end of a civilization, they mean the energy use that is required mm -hmm. to power a technologically advanced civilization okay. might be, you might need more energy for that than is available. Got it. Um, so we can imagine ways that a society might overuse some of its resources to generate power for itself. We are at the start. We're doing of, it we're now. Like, we're like, you know, we're in the in the stages of that now, but we know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Science and science fiction have given us a lot of ideas for how to fix this problem of ours, and I do believe we can do it. Let's do it. And even if we're the first alien race to do that, like, great. I'll take I'll take that first. Sure. <laughs> I'll oh, take that win. That would be amazing. <laughs> uh, so this is this is all about the Fermi paradox. But there's a, a kind of cute story about how this paradox originated. So it's named the Fermi paradox after Enrico Fermi or Fermi, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist who was very involved with the Manhattan Project and the mm -hmm. and and the and the bombs. Like he he figured out how to do nuclear fusion for mm -hmm. us. Um, and then World War II happened. So thank you, Enrico Fermi. Thanks, Fermi. Thanks. <laughs> um, so in 1950, Enrico Fermi was having lunch with his colleagues at Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico. And kind of just like under his breath, they weren't really talking about, about SETI specifically. Uh, but under his breath, he muttered, where is everybody? And in the letters that I read, it, they said that it was clear he was talking about aliens. But then he did not go on to actually 
flesh out this this oh Fermi's paradox. Like he died, Fermi died a few years later. Mm-hmm. And then it was other people who remembered this conversation or who did their own calculations that talked about how easy it should be for societies to spread around the galaxy, given how long right. the universe has been around. Even if it takes you a million years to reach a new star because you can't travel close to the speed of light, the galaxy has been around for billions of years. Right. So they should still Certainly. have time to spread. Oh, that's so fun. I would love to just say something offhand and then it becomes <laughs> like a key piece of science. <laughs> right? I like maybe I should just have people following me around at yeah. all of my lunches writing down my little offhand remarks. You should just be muttering all the time. All the time and then just totally rock the scientific community with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, please. I would like that. That's Fermi's paradox. There are lots of reasons you don't have to fall into that trap. We know that there are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. On average, all of those stars should have a couple planets. So there are many hundreds of billions of planets in our galaxy. And who's to say that life can only exist on planets that look exactly like Earth? So true. Why? Why would it? Why would it? Yeah. Hey, it's Corinne. Here's a quick shout out to some of our amazing patrons who are supporting this podcast. Thank you, as always, to our sun-like stars, Sharn Llewellyn and Finn. And thank you to our latest pre-main sequence stars, Three's the Charm, Ileana Leto, and Shannon Henderson. You too can support us, hear your name on this podcast, and make it to our patron star chart, all by supporting us on Patreon. Find the star chart, Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com, or by going right to patreon.com slash palebluepod. I know I'm already a doctor of the universe, and I learned a lot of the stuff that we cover on this pod in school, both undergrad and graduate. But I still have to do a lot of research for these episodes, if only to make sure that what I think I remember is accurate. So I spend so much time on the Internet, like I'm sure all of you. Uh, I open new tabs at a rate that might actually be a little bit alarming. But luckily, I know of a way to turn that tab opening into something good for the world. I use Tab for a Cause. It's a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity while doing your thing online. So whenever you open a new tab, you'll see a beautiful photo and a small ad. And part of that ad money goes towards a charity of your choice. You can join the team for Pale Blue Pod by signing up at tabforacause.org slash palebluepod. That's Tab for a Cause. T-A-B-F-O-R-A-C-A-U-S-E dot org slash pale blue pod. And I hope you know how to spell the name of this show that you're listening to right now. So uh, browse the internet and make good stuff happen for the world. You can even choose charities that you want to support. Um, again, that's tabforacause.org slash pale blue pod. I just want to let you know that if you like pale blue pod, then you might love Star Tripper. It's a travelogue podcast about former file clerk Festin Pixis as he searches for the zowiest experiences the galaxy has to offer. In the tradition of classic sci-fi, anime, with a little bit of Saturday morning cartoons sprinkled in, dive into the action and explore the thriving cosmos with Festin and his crew. You can listen as they zoom through an intergalactic death race, battle a mega beetle live on a popular cooking show, and navigate their way through the eerie dunes of the packaged dimension. Star Tripper has a fully immersive sound design, killer music, and is an instant mood lifter. Popular science even called Star Tripper pure joy in a zippy little sci-fi package. Two complete seasons and two space holiday specials are available to listen now wherever you get your podcasts and on Star Tripper's website, StarTripperHQ.com. Hi, it's Moya. Can I interest you in a podcast recommendation? I'm just going to go ahead and do it. This one is coming from the Multitude Collective, and it's called Games and Feelings. Games and Feelings is an advice podcast all about games, appropriately. You can join question keeper Eric Silver and a revolving cast of guests as they answer your questions at the intersection of fun and humanity, since, you know, you got to play games with other people. And we're talking all types of games here. Video games, tabletop games, party games, laser tag, escape rooms, even game streams and D&D podcasts, and the people and companies that make these games. Really anything related to something that you might play. So they'll ask questions like, how do you convince people who have only played Monopoly to play the new board game that you grabbed at the game store? Or is an escape room a good third date? If these topics sound interesting, 
interesting to you and if you like to play things, then why don't you level up your emotional intelligence stat and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts to Games and Feelings. New episodes come out every single Friday. Um, so I think I need to tell you what types of information we can learn about exoplanets before I tell you like how we're actively searching for the aliens. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because all of this so far has been, you know, the history of do people think aliens are out there? And now we can actually start talking about how people are looking for them now that most, most scientists would agree. Yes, they are out there. We just need to find them. Okay. So we will definitely be doing at least one episode in the future about exoplanet detection methods, because that is my shit. (laughs) Um, I would not need to do any prep for that episode. That'd be really nice. Moya exoplanet. (laughs) (laughs) You joke, Corinne, but... But it's true. Maybe maybe I've changed my middle names legally to to exoplanet. (laughs) So we, yeah, we'll definitely do that episode or episodes later. But the information that will be helpful to you right now is that we can only observe or directly measure a few pieces of data about a planet outside of our solar system. We can measure how big the planet is, like its its physical size, its radius. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also measure its mass. We can figure out how far away the planet is from its star, which gives us an idea about how hot or cold the planet might be, as long as we also know how hot the star is. But that is just... That's like an estimate because we don't know what's going on inside the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, we might have some basic information about the planet's atmosphere if it's big enough, uh, thanks to spectroscopy. Um, and we we might have an idea about how shiny or how reflective the planet is. Astronomers call that albedo. Um, and you can do this by like measuring how much light you're getting from the planet as it's rotating around. If you're getting a lot of light from the planet specifically, it's a shiny planet and there might be ice on its surface. If you're not getting a lot of light from this planet, then it's probably not very reflective and maybe there's just like a lot of dirt. Um, Scientists do have lists of like the reflectivity of different substances like trees, dirt, water, ice, and it's really cool. That's so so cool. mm -hmm. I love how much you're showing me that's a lot of, um, especially in astronomy, it's like deductive. Like, well, if we, yes. if this is true, then this is true. And I, I mean, that's how I solve problems in day to day life all the time. So it's just so fun to see it on a large scale because science can feel so untouchable and yeah. like, yeah. Especially to a science that is literally untouchable, like yes. astronomy. I say all the time, I've never, I can't touch a star, yeah. but I study stars around the galaxy. Um, astronomy is fundamentally an observational science. Mm-hmm. We can't run experiments. We can only make control groups out of like observing Other, yeah. Yeah, enough stuff out in the universe. So um, we do have to do creative, deductive reasoning work to learn about space. I love it. Um, All of those things that we can learn about planets, they come from different planet detection methods. So we'll be talking about that in the future episode. But that list, size, mass, distance from star, some information about the atmosphere and how shiny the surface is. And then in the future, um, I did a, a project in grad school where I came up with a method to figure out how bumpy a planet is. Um, We can't do that with current technology, but soon we will also be able to, I say soon, like in the next 10 to 15 years, Mm -hmm. we'll also be able to learn about the surface features of planets. That's so fun. Thanks to my work. Yay! (laughs) Thanks to your muttering at lunch. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Actually, um, one of my projects in grad school did happen because one of my advisors had a random shower thought, and then he came into work after that shower, and he was like, hey, Moya, have you ever thought of this? That's so fun. I was like, no, but let me spend the fourth year of grad school answering this question. That's amazing. (laughs) And I did. That's a true story. Um, But that list of things that we can learn, that's all we know about planets. So anytime you hear someone on the news say that we've found an Earth-like planet or that we have found a planet that is habitable, take that with many grains of salt. Like, Be Mm -hmm. pretty skeptical about that because we don't have the ability right now with our current technology to learn much about these individual planets. Okay. So we're doing sure. we're doing a lot of we're making a lot of assumptions when we make claims of habitability. Um, but with those things that we can learn, scientists have gotten very creative in manipulating those pieces of data to try and eke out any sort of information about uh, the existence of life mm-hmm. on that planet. 
broadly speaking, the two types of evidence that astronomers are looking for when we're searching for life, when we're doing this SETI work, are technosignatures and biosignatures. Okay. Technosignatures are uh, signatures of technology existing on that world, and biosignatures are are signatures of, of life existing on that world. Remember that one of the factors in Drake's equation uh, was the fraction of intelligent life that produces, and in my notes, this is in italics, detectable technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the technology part was always really important to the SETI Institute from the beginning, from its incorporation. Researchers, scientists, and science fiction writers, they've done a lot for this work, have gotten creative when imagining what that technology could be that aliens produce. And then the scientists who, like the astronomers, who are looking for these technosignatures have had to get extremely creative in figuring out how to find it. <laughs> so some things that, uh, some like pieces of technology that we might be looking for are lights that they use during nighttime okay. or um, maybe some sort of big structure, like a big spaceship that they that they build outside of their world. Or maybe they are, like we did with the Arecibo message, maybe they're also transmitting something. So mm -hmm. we're looking for these, these short bursts. Um, but each of those pieces of technology has like a different way that we would try yeah. <laughs> to find it. Um, most of these are by trying to measure how much light you get from the planet and the star and based on like the change in light over time, figuring out what created that light. Yeah. So one of my one of my favorite techno signature papers that I ever read was by I'm not going I'm not going to name the author because he sucks, but the paper was interesting. <laughs> they were looking for nightlife on exoplanets. That's like they were so imagining fun. these aliens going out and clubbing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like they're they are picturing an alien Manhattan. And I love it. And that's what we're looking for. I'm only yeah. going there if they're cool. And if they if have city cool. life. <laughs> if I can club, I'm yeah. going. Oh. <laughs> so uh, as the planet orbits the star. The planet itself will block some of the star's light okay. if it's between us and the star. That's normal. We search for planets using that method all the time. It's called transit photometry, and I will absolutely nerd out about it in a future episode. <laughs> but for now, for the for the searching for nightlife, um, as the planet goes around the star, it's also rotating because planets orbit and they rotate. We have a year on Earth, mm -hmm. and we also have a day yeah. on Earth. If we can see the night side of the planet, like when it's when the planet is between us and the star, we are looking at the night side. If that night side is brighter than it should be mm -hmm. based on the light that we've been measuring from the system over time, if the night side just looks bright, we would say they have they have some night lights. They have night lights. <laughs> that's a roaring city right there. Or um, so I talked about megastructures, these alien megastructures is a term you, that gets thrown around a lot. One of the most famous of, of these megastructures is called a Dyson sphere. Have you heard of these? No, but I'm picturing a Dyson vacuum, which can't yeah. be right. You know, well, it's not that <laughs> far off. I think the Dyson vacuums have like a, a sphere that rotates and oh, they, that's, yeah, that's part I of think the you're suction. Right. I don't think that that's not why Might not be part they're of it, named but that. <laughs> I can remember it that way. But the idea is that if a civilization gets so technologically advanced, they would need more power, but they might not have enough energy on their planet. Okay. So what they would start to do is harness the energy of their star. So a Dyson sphere is this hypothetical thing. It was, I think, maybe first or like early on, it was talked about in science fiction. The Dyson sphere would be this structure that they build around their star of like solar panels to capture energy and then and then funnel it towards, towards. their technology. Whoa. And we would be able to detect that if uh, because the the sphere itself would heat up. It would collect energy from the star. Um, it would block the star's light if yeah. it's opaque. Uh, but then it would heat up and and emit in the infrared part of the spectrum. So we would be able to, to detect that. Uh -huh. And I just love how creative we can get with like not just the wavelength that we're observing in. Like you, you can see different things if you observe in the optical versus the infrared. We talked about that in the light episode. But also like 
the shapes of the signals you're looking for. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I just, I, there are so many ways to look for techno signatures and I, I'm just really happy that we have that. Um, so the government, the U.S. federal government has recently become more interested in funding techno signature research. Um, so now people at NASA, people at uh, federal labs, people at universities that are funded by the government, they are now getting to do more techno signature research. But it's also being funded pretty heavily by private people, like by, mm-hmm. by the private sector. Um, I think the biggest funding for techno signature research right now from the private sector is coming from uh, the Breakthrough Listen program. Uh, Breakthrough in general is this series of projects aimed at finding aliens, pretty much. Um, it's funded by Yuri Milner, um, y- Yuri and Julia, his wife mm-hmm. Milner. And they gave a hundred million dollars to break not not all of breakthrough, just breakthrough listen. Wow. Got a hundred million dollars uh paid out over ten years to look for techno signatures specifically. That's really cool. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> putting so much money into this. That is so much money. Especially when Drake did it. Was it it was Drake, right? Who did it for two thousand dollars? <laughs> Yeah, but he was also it was looking a different at two thing. stars. Yeah, different thing, but so a funny how we've thing. made the leap from $2,000 to $10 million a year for 10 years. I know. What would Frank Drake have done? Like he, Oh, my God. He would have pointed it at three stars. You're right. Maybe <laughs> four. Uh, again, RIP, yeah. but two stars? What the fuck? <laughs> okay, so that's that's techno signatures. Very similar, but uh, but distinct is the search for biosignatures. Uh, these are signs of biological processes on a planet instead of technical ones. So we're not looking for light that they created. We're not looking for any big megastructures. We're looking for stuff that just like happens in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have studied chemical reactions here on Earth well enough to know that there are some molecules, there are some compounds that only exist where there is life because natural processes don't produce it or don't produce it in high enough quantities to be measured. Okay. And then the leap there is that if they detect those types of compounds on other planets, they would expect that natural processes on those planets work the same way. So they aren't uh, producing these molecules naturally, but are producing them in, in alien bodies. Okay. Some of these molecules are oxygen, methane, nitrous oxide, dimethyl sulfide. A couple years ago, there was this big story about astronomers find or thinking that they found. It turned out not to be true. Uh-huh. Uh, but they thought they found phosphine on Venus, which is um, a, a biosignature because it's very related to aerobic uh, like digestive processes, oh. you find them a lot in uh, like in garbage dumps here oh, on Earth, where there okay. are bacteria like producing that. Um, and that's not to say that these molecules don't exist without life. Like we we know that there's there's oxygen around, there's there's methane around, but only life can produce it on Earth at high enough levels that we would expect to detect it in an sure. exoplanet. And again, <laughs> we are making assumptions about the biological processes of those aliens right. and also the natural processes of those planets. Right. I don't know if we can be 100% certain that the chemical reactions would work just the same way on those other planets. You know, they might have drastically different conditions, mm-hmm. um, very different temperatures and pressures. So who knows? Yeah, we're really assuming that what we're going to find is a human or, or like something close to what we have here on Earth. And who knows what we don't know? Yeah, I I like to be very generous and say that astronomers know life out there wouldn't look like us. But yeah. we are trying to constrain our search mm-hmm. to make it easier for us. Like yeah. we're looking for things that we we know produced some type of life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we are the type of life that we know best. Yeah. So these... These biosignature searches rely less on light, like the technosignature searches, and more on spectroscopy, more on measuring the the elements that you would see in a planet's atmosphere. But there are some light things you can do. Um, If you have... I remember seeing this paper about algae blooms. If you have like a lake or something that has algae in it, it will bloom seasonally, mm-hmm. um, like when the planet is in different conditions. So we can measure like the color of the planet over time. And if it's green some parts of the year and not green other parts of the year, we're like, 
algae. That's so funny. <laughs> or, or if we can see, uh, this is very similar, if we can see seasonal changes in albedo. Remember, albedo is how reflective the surface of the planet is. So if it's very reflective uh, part of the year and very absorptive, not very <laughs> reflective the other part of yeah. the year, then... Um, you know, maybe ice is melting. I was just going to say, is that ice melting? Yeah, it's ice melting or it's trees uh, like blooming mm-hmm. and then dying. So we look for that a lot. And uh, these biosignature searches are much easier to do in our own solar system. Sure. Because the planets are closer, some of the planets we can actually send stuff to. So the the rovers and other machines on Mars are searching through those rocks. Like some yep. of them have uh, instruments on board to look for organic compounds and molecules. Um, The Cassini spacecraft that we sent to Saturn and its moons flew through these jets of water that shoot out of one of Saturn's moons called Enceladus. And we knew, I'm pretty sure we knew already that that moon Enceladus had an icy surface, but liquid water underneath Mm -hmm. that icy um, sheet. And we sent Cassini flying through one of those jets of water and Whoa. it analyzed the water. And what we found was was like a mixture of organic compounds and delicious saltiness that wow. might lead to life. Um, and we have this mission that will be flying on Titan, another moon of Saturn, flying through its atmosphere. Uh, the mission is called Dragonfly uh, because it will look like a little dragonfly just floating hovering through the atmosphere of Titan, and it's going to be collecting samples to see if there are organic compounds there. Oh, that's so fun. So yeah, we are actively searching for stuff in our solar system. Um, Enceladus is something that astronomers are excited about. Europa, uh, which is one of the moons Mm -hmm. of Jupiter, it also has this icy sheet uh, covering a a liquid water ocean underneath. Uh, People are excited about that. And people are very excited about Dragonfly on Titan. That's so cool. I had no idea about the plumes of water even. I know. It's just like Old Faithful, but out in space. Yeah, yeah. It feels so (laughs) normal and like like very earthy. (laughs) Yeah, correct. There's... You can find elements of Earth everywhere else in the universe. I love it. It's the same stuff, just arranged in different ways. That's amazing. I read, this is a a bit of a tangent, I read Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski earlier this year. And one of the things she really focuses on in the early chapters is, it's all all about like bodies and sexual Mm -hmm. pleasure. And one of the things she says over and over again is that all of our bodies are just the same parts, but rearranged differently. Um, Like even um, across genders, like everything, you know? and I like to think of space the same way. Like everything is the same parts. It's just arranged differently. That's really fun. It feels like a Lego thing of like, <laughs> I can use these pieces and make it in this way now. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I do have a fun for us about aliens. And this is way okay. closer to how I think of aliens. <laughs> oh, good. So it is, it makes perfect, um, it, it's perfectly fine if this is challenging. <laughs> It is a series of true-false questions about the movie Alien. (laughs) I've never seen it, so this will be fun. Maya? Neither have I. (laughs) I Corinne, no! I think I may have seen it at my friend Chelsea's house a few years ago, but I don't remember if that's what we watched. (laughs) We watched a few movies that night, but okay. (laughs) Let's see. Alien, the movie. Okay, well, I'll give you a brief like overview of what Alien is. It's a movie okay. um, starring Sigourney <laughs> Weaver and an alien. <laughs> like, there's more to it than that, but that is what I know about it for sure. <laughs> Good. I'm going in with this <laughs> with this much information. I'm so prepared. True, false. Alien, the movie is a 1979 film directed by Ridley Scott. Oh shit. Okay. So, the thing about true, false quizzes is that usually it's in the details so like i could say true but you're like no it's 1970 right, right. or 1973 i'm gonna or something. say though that when i wrote these i didn't i didn't try to trick you okay. <laughs> okay good um i i'm pretty sure that's true it is true yay, yay. <laughs> corinne um just a fun thing about ridley scott my favorite commercial ever is a seven minute commercial Directed by Ridley Scott for Hennessy. I've never heard of this. <laughs> for Hennessy XO. And it's the whole thing is like exploring the different worlds, which represent the different flavor notes in Hennessy XO. Oh and my God, that's so fun. I have watched this 
seven minute commercial so many times. Okay, I'm gonna look, I'm gonna watch this as soon as we're done. Please do. So that's what I know about Ridley Scott, and now I know he directed Alien. That's so, okay. <laughs> next, true false. Alien the movie was met with mixed reviews on release, but was a box office success. I'm gonna say false. I don't know why. It's true. It's true. It's true. It was oh, okay. met with mixed reviews, but it was a box office success. I was like, maybe it was met with great reviews, but it but failed at the box it. office. Because that happens sometimes. That happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily, Alien, success. Okay. Great. Good job. Well, that's good that job, explains Alien. why there are so many yes, there's movies so in the many franchise. Of them. I don't think I asked you about how many there are, but there are many of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alien the movie was deemed culturally, historically, were aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress. I refuse to believe that's true. It is true. Corinne, are all of these true? Yeah, well, I, I'm pretty is this sure. Is the true quiz? I am pretty sure. <laughs> they're all true. I think there's one that, okay, there's one that might be false coming up, but I'm just, it's just so de- deductive. Now you're going to know. Okay. okay, well, here's the next one. Alien, the alien in the movie Alien... Mm. Has a full set of human teeth like a real man. No. True. I know they're called xenomorphs. Are they? I didn't even know that. I know they erupt from your belly. Oh my God, they do? They have human teeth? Why do they have human teeth? Well, I don't know if they're human teeth. Clearly he owns his teeth. Wait, Corinne, that was a key key word in the question. Well, I wrote the questions and I picked the answers in this unscientific way. So to me, he has human teeth like a real man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the question should have been true, false. I, Corinne, think that this alien has human teeth. Okay, that's it. That's the question. (laughs) Okay, next question. The movie Aliens writer Dan O'Brien also worked on Star Wars. False. True. Damn it, Corinne. I'm just, I'm going to say false for everything. He did computer animation and graphic displays in the miniature and optical effects unit the year before Alien came out. Oh. I thought that was cool. Okay, I can see the overlap there. Lots of lots of science yes. effects needed. Mm-hmm. Probably, it was probably a smaller world, too, of like the sci-fi movie industry, I imagine. That's true. Everyone knows everyone. They're like, hey, you, you want to hire Jim over there? Yes. He's just one lot over. <laughs> just go get him. I think he wrapped on his other things. Um, okay, last one. It's not, it's not false. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I actually have been sitting here like, you're like, the, I'm like, where's the false one? <laughs> uh, well, that too, like with little raccoon hands, but also the, the like perfectionist A, A plus student yes. in me is like, I gotta get I've it right. So many wrong. No, no, you're doing great. This is made up. <laughs> uh, the, actually, the best score you can get is a 50%. So. <laughs> Okay. In 2019, students at North Bergen High School in New Jersey adapted the film into a play. <gasps> I know it's true, and I need to know so much it's more true. about this. How did they? How do they do the eruption? That's such a good question. I don't know about the um, like how they did any of the effects, but Ridley <laughs> Scott found out about it. Was so like excited, he paid for them to do an encore of the show, and Sigourney Weaver attended. <gasps> Did Ridley Scott attend it? I don't think he did. Well, at least the Wikipedia didn't say that he did, but maybe they didn't care if he went and it was like way more remarkable that Sigourney Weaver went. Yeah, she's remarkable. But there is a stage adaptation of this that a high school did (laughs) and Sigourney Weaver's seen it. I love that so much. (laughs) And that concludes the Alien game. (laughs) Wow, what, what a lovely game where the questions were a bit misleading. Are made up. In the same way, we don't know much about aliens. We don't know much mm. about how to write a quiz. Exactly. Yes, we're we're not we're not a quiz podcast. You can't be good at everything. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know what? I I firmly believe that you you cannot be good at everything, and you should not. We be should good be at dividing it's it up. Unfair. Yes. Yeah. It would be really rude of me, actually. <laughs> Leave some awesomeness for the rest of us, Corinne, please. Well, that is perfect timing that we just finished this quiz and my uh, my deep conditioning treatment is done. done. I feel esteemed. My hair is so moisturized and and these curls are going to be popping. I can already tell. Birthday curls. Let's go mm-hmm. hit up some alien nightlife. <laughs> We're going to let's go. Let's go clubbing on an exoplanet. Yes. And we'll know we'll know which ones have the good clubs based yeah. on on their nightlife, night light, nightlife profile. 
That's really hard that, to say. That's a mouthful. Yeah. That's how I'm going to warm up for the next episode. <laughs> uh, so, listeners, wherever you are, whatever your hair looks like, remember that you are space. Bye. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.